0: Hello, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today we are going to talk about the interdependence of men and women, as seen by evangelicals and Latter-day Saints. I know that sounds like an obscure topic. Stay with me. It will be fascinating, I promise. Um, If you're here, you probably know we're going through the Come Follow Me readings and just picking out some verses as kind of jumping off spots for some of the differences that come up in our two faiths with the goal of Latter-day Saints for you maybe to be able to talk with your evangelical friends in a way where you understand what they're saying better and that you might be able to get to share something really good from our faith with them. Um, okay. So in um, a past episode uh, number seven, something like that. Early on, um, we talked about the role of women in both groups. Kind of, what are women allowed to do? What aren't they? What are some of the similarities and differences? And there's a lot. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences. Go back and listen to that episode. I think it's called "Certain Women." Um, that that that's where that one went. Today, we're gonna do something a little bit different. I want to talk about um, the way that both groups see how men and women um, are interdependent on each other. And of course, I mean, just the classic verse to jump off with this comes in this week's reading. First Corinthians 11, 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Right. So in the section, Paul has been talking about. um, some different ideas about men and women and I guess to this part of like like hold up like y'all both need each other and i think it is really really fascinating how the two different groups latter-day saints and evangelicals um it, 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 ne- neither group is gonna deny this verse from paul you would be hard-pressed actually to find an evangelical who's gonna write off really any of paul's words um, but especially not here. And they Day Saints are all reading these words of Paul this very week, right? So nobody's outright rejecting that. We just come at it from two really, really different histories that have formed different perspectives. Um, so let me give you just kind of an easy example on that. I like to listen to audiobooks when I'm doing things around the house. And lately I have been kind of obsessed with books about the history of the the Western states in the United States. Um, and a lot of those books have to do with water issues. So uh, I have many friends who will tell you I talk about this way too much. Um, but I've kind of become obsessed about, like, how did water issues develop the way that they have? Like, how did we end up with the policies we have today? So I've been listening to this classic in that genre called Cadillac Desert. And in the early part of this book, the first 150 pages or so, they're tracing through um, irrigation systems in the West. If you guys didn't already think I'm like nerdy and have interests that no one else has, like this proves it to you, I'm very sorry but you're here listening so maybe we're in this together i don't know anyway the book is tracing um irrigation systems in the western united states and the author again and again comes back to this idea of there's an incredible amount of effort and money and energy required to make these um these irrigation systems It also requires all kinds of cooperation, um, political savvy, knowing how to get all of these things done. And again and again, he will say something like, well, the the Mormons figured this out a long time ago, and they have been having these types of irrigation systems for a long time, but they're this tight-knit society where communal good could be more easily put ahead of individual good. Um, And, like, that's his explanation. Like, they figured out irrigation because they had to, because they were this group that cared about each other's good, which is actually, I think, a really lovely thing to say. Um, He doesn't always mean it that way in the book, but that's a different story. Um, And it doesn't always work out that way, right? The communal good is not always put um, the highest priority in our church. This author's referring to like the 1910s and the 1920s, so maybe things were different then. All of that aside, um, Latter-day Saints do come from this history of being a group where cooperation within the group was highly valued. I want to I move into some of the factors that cause evangelicals to think about their group identity slightly differently than latter-day saints do um and we will apply those thoughts to the concept of how gender roles play out in the groups at the end so hang there with me so we start with history around here um the evangelicals are really really influenced here by their desire to not be their grandparents right this is where the early days of evangelicalism come from Um, And mostly here, they're reacting against the Methodists. So early, like late 1950s, early 1960s, Methodists pretty much run the Protestant world, at least in the United States. Um, You, today you can find Methodist churches all across the spectrum, from very, very conservative to very, very liberal. But back then... Methodism mostly meant like your grandmother's church. It was very um like pre-World War II kind of social norms. Um, and the evangelicals post-World War II is not what they wanted for themselves. And so they kind of refer to this as like your grandma's church. There's a lot of cultural upheaval at this time. Rules in society are changing, and the early evangelicals they want to attend a church where they feel like they're keeping up with the times, right? That's what's motivating them here. In some ways, um, it's certainly, in therapy, sometimes we call it like reactionary identity, meaning it, it's like what teenagers do. Teenagers first decide, I don't want to be like my parents. Before They decide that before they decide, well, what actually do I want to be? They just sort of have this reaction And they build an identity around it at least for a time it's a stage of development it's what they got to do whatever um and the early days evangelicals were in this reactionary identity mode that sort of said i don't know what i am yet but i'm not a fuddy-duddy grammar church that that's how they're forming themselves initially um We want to be the opposite of what has been happening for the last 50 years, is basically what they said. And really, um, they have to start to figure out what that means for them with the most basic question, which is, how does one become a Christian? How do you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ? And for a long time, their answer was... Well, I don't know, but you can't do it the way my parents did it. <laughs> um the the way that the way that methodism was at the time and they were the largest player in the Protestant world in the United States, um they really relied heavily on infant baptism. Not nearly true to the degree now that it used to be. Um and I mean side note, Methodists don't conceptualize infant baptism the same way Catholics do. That's getting into the weeds, uh, uh, and I don't want to get into what all of that is about, but infant baptism was a, like, immediately after World War II, that's a very, very important thing still in the the minds of a lot of Protestants. Suffice it to say, the early evangelicals were very clear on not wanting anything that seemed too old-fashioned. So they reject infant baptism, for the most part. There's a couple exceptions, but for the most part. And when they do that, they're really rejecting the established Methodist churches that are in every city and town in the United States. Um, but every movement, especially a brand new one, they need some allies and they need some mentors. And early evangelicals found that support mostly in the Baptists. Why are they called the Baptists? Not because they baptize infants, but because they make um, you wait until you're old enough to make a declaration of faith on your own. Um, some Baptist churches assign an age to that the most common age is is eight years old. Um, some of them assign age twelve. Some of them say we'll leave it up to the child and their parents, but basically the kid has to be aware enough that they get to make baptism as a choice um, this is called credio baptism, which is the opposite of baptism, which is infant baptism. Um so it's not even the early evangelicals were theologically set on this credio baptism. They call it adult baptism, even though usually we're talking about eight years eight-year-olds. Um it's not that they were so theologically set on that as it was that. Their early partners and allies and mentors, that was the belief that they had. these Baptist churches. Uh, the other piece that comes along with that is that Baptists are nothing if not independent. If you've been a Latter-day Saint your entire life, this is going to take a moment to wrap your brain around. But Baptists are technically not even considered a denomination a denomination has some kind of, of central authority and the member churches have to follow certain rules and practices and, and maybe they get to vote on those and maybe they don't, depends upon the the different denominations. But they're going to receive direction and oversight and support from that central authority. Baptists are not that. Baptists conceptualize themselves um, like in the words of the Southern Baptists, they they think of themselves as a convention, but not a denomination. A convention is a group of like-minded churches that want to associate with each other voluntarily, but not control each other. So they operate entirely independently and have very little responsibility to their headquarters. Now modern modern Southern Baptists are allowed. Um, i need bit more control than maybe back in the in the early 50s and 60s some things have changed for them um, but for the most part they are a conglomeration of churches that like each other if a church wants out they can easily leave um historically baptists disagree with each other on just about everything and for the most part that's not considered a problem Although, just this last year, you might have heard um, in the news, um, one of the largest Southern Baptist churches called Saddleback Church in Southern California, they left the convention um, over disagreements about the role of women. So lots and lots of things are, are swirling and changing for them. Um, the point here is they are incredibly independently minded, and they really, really influence the early um, evangelical leaders. Um But that relationship still only gets them so far. The evangelicals are still looking at the Baptists as a a little bit too old-fashioned. And by the time the 1960s come around, or or the late 1960s, the evangelicals are really, really interested in trying to reach, like, the hippie flower children. And they really want to distance themselves even further from the like grandma church culture, as they saw it. Um, Grandmas hold the churches of the world together, by the way, truth be told. Um, So that's no diss on on grandmothers or grandfathers. Um, I'm just telling you how they conceptualized it back back then. So by the late 1960s, they're starting to make this move where they removed the concept of baptism being required at all so initially it's required as infant baptism they 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 follow the lead of the the baptist churches and move it up to at least age eight by the late 1960s you're starting to see evangelical churches that say you know baptism is this optional thing and and you might do it if you feel led to do so um like if that's a step of faith that you want to take but it's not necessary for salvation. It doesn't really, it doesn't do anything. It's not efficacious. It's just a, it's a nice thing. If, if God tells you you should, then you probably should. But it doesn't really change anything for you. So that starts for them the late 1960s. Today, you'll find a, a wide variety of evangelical churches that, that's kind of their take on baptism. Nobody's really asking you like have you been baptized you might have to bring it up yourself and if you do you may or may not find a um like existing supportive process for how to go from being not baptized to baptized it just isn't viewed like it is in our church but this creates a new problem for them if you're not going to teach people um To do as the new testament says believe and be baptized then how are people going to identify themselves as believers so the evangelicals make this really interesting pivot right here and they invent something um, today we call it the sinner's prayer where they ask jesus to be their personal lord and savior and do you catch that word personal um We're talking today about individualism and community and how that has developed and what that means for women and men. We're getting there. The the phrase personal savior, it comes to symbolize their entire stance towards faith. It's a relationship that is entirely between them and God alone, and no one else gets a say in it whatsoever. So from, I mean, pretty early in their history, evangelicals are being shaped by this idea that their faith is theirs alone. Nobody else can really help them out with it all that much. Um, to this day, that's still a strong value for them. I've told you a number of times on this podcast, like evangelicals really, really value, value this like independent streak. You can't tell me what to do. And um, in, in, you see it playing out here. In 2020, an incredibly popular book for evangelicals came out called Jesus and John Wayne. Um, it uses the political events of the day to critique the evangelical impo- impulse towards this kind of rugged individualism. Okay. So Latter-day Saints, on the other hand, have spent a very good amount of the last 200 years being in quite a different situation. Instead of trying to um, assert individualism, they survived by asserting community. Um, Because of the situation Latter-day Saints found themselves in, they did not really have the luxury of straying too far away from the main group. They needed each other in order to survive. Now that hasn't been true for many, many years. But the early history of a group often sets the culture of a group. And and that's where we are. Um, From the very outset, Latter-day Saints are being formed as a people who have to rely on each other. Sometimes even for just basic survival. Um, And it's not as true as it used to be. But you still see it play out um, kind of in the popular imagination especially where it really plays out is as Latter-day Saints are portrayed in television and movies. A few weeks back at the fair conference, um, a guy named Derek Westra gave a talk. Um, if you haven't listened to it, it's absolutely one of the, the, the really, really good standout talks from that week. Um, so he gave a talk about how Latter-day Saints are portrayed in the media. Derek works for the church, he's in the communications department, his job and his team is to keep tabs on how the church is portrayed in the media, and he showed example after example of recent shows and movies that portray Latter-day Saints as, like, insular, afraid of outside influences, not allowed to read books not printed by the church, suspicious of newcomers. It The 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 whole giant picture that's painted by these tv shows and movies is some of the very worst version of what it's like to be a supportive community and and twists it to look more cultish and creepy instead of um together and supportive so the the communalism communalism that I'm talking about is probably lower now than if it's been in 200 years. We don't need it for survival as much as we used to, but it's still significant enough that outsiders see it and exaggerate it for entertainment. So this is very much still a thing. Let me give you one more example of how Latter-day Saints have been shaped by kind of this communal mindset, and then we're going to apply it to men and women. Uh, In contrast to, you must ask Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, Latter-day Saints have been formed by a different idea as expressed by these words. How are they to become saviors on Mount Zion? By building their temples, erecting their baptismal founts, going forth and receiving all the ordinances, baptisms, confirmations, washings, anointings, ordinations, and sealing power upon their heads in behalf of all their progenitors who are dead and redeem them that they may come forth in the first resurrection and be exalted to thrones of glory with them. And herein is the chain that binds the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, which fulfills the mission of Elijah. That is anything but individualism being prized above all else. We are formed not by this reactionary identity, but by trying to link the entire human family together. It's the opposite of Western individualism or, or John Wayne Christianity. This is kind of a dumb analogy, but it, I mean, it's really about the best I could do. In, in evangelicalism, it's a sport more like, like team gymnastics. I love gymnastics you've seen it on the Olympics if you haven't seen it anywhere else each team is made up of a certain number of athletes. athletes each gymnast contributes their individual score to a group total right seven girls run down the the runway and do the vault take the top five scores add them up that's the team score no gymnast can do anything to help any of the other. She is entirely responsible for her own performance and then is added to the group total, but nobody helps her. Contrast that with a sport like baseball or softball or kickball. If the bases are loaded and you're up, you know what your job is. Get your friends home. They can't progress without your effort that brings up the interdependence of men and women one of the most frequent questions i have been asked by friends outside of our church is something like has it been hard for you to like lower your status as a woman or or maybe um what does it feel like to be in a church where women don't have a voice and I mean, honestly, sometimes I don't even know how to answer that question because the context is entirely so different. Before I was baptized into our church, it's true. I had some opportunities that I don't have now. I was ordained, for example. That is not open to me now, and I am 100% fine with that. Let me tell you why. It's the interdependence of everyone in the group. Working together as an entire team to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. If I were a gymnast and I were told, uh, you're not allowed to do any of the coolest tricks, I would be really upset for myself and for my team. It, if I can't do the coolest tricks, how will I ever contribute a high score to our team's total? It would be insulting because I would know I could do more and was being artificially held back. It would feel like some kind of prejudice but when you're playing a team sport like baseball the whole thing is set up so that certain people are in certain positions for certain reasons the pitcher isn't placed there because he's bad at being a catcher women aren't placed in roles because they're bad at roles that a man has that the pitcher's placed there because he can throw the ball right? The outfielder isn't there because he's bad at being the catcher. He's there to play his role for reasons. And without him, everyone in the game would be lost. What he does matters just as much as what anybody else does. So if I have a choice, and I do, um, (laughs) Shreem being just an individual trying to get my own personal highest score so that it can be added to the team score um, if the choice is between that and getting to be part of a team where we are all just trying to get each other home, I know which one I choose. And to me, that feels much more like interdependence. Men need women. Women need men. We're all doing this together. There, It's not, a, oh, now you belong to a church where you don't have a voice. Okay. That's all the time I have for this week. Next week, we're talking about Prophecy and how that works for both groups. It'll be great. I'll see you then.